Let me ask you now to open up your Bibles and let's look together at the book of Romans, chapter 8. We are seeking to preach the full counsel of God. Therefore, we are working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this great letter. Preaching verse by verse like this protects all of us from the tendency of a pastor to avoid certain texts and to preach only the texts that he, he likes and finds easy to understand. Uh, verse by verse, expository preaching means that you get a full balanced diet of the Word of God. Verses are different. Verses taste different. Uh, there are passages of Scripture that are like a good piece of fried chicken or a juicy hamburger. They're just good. Sorry to any vegetarians here. When I think good food, I think meat. Um, there are verses that are delicious and just sweet to our souls. And then there are passages of Scripture that are a little more like spinach, a little more like, like Brussels sprouts, Maybe we don't quite get as excited about those passages of Scripture. Some parts of the Bible are hard to swallow. But every part of the Bible is good for us. Every verse, whether it's of the hamburger variety or the spinach variety, it is healthy for us. But occasionally you find passages in the Bible that are even better than a good hamburger. You find places in the Bible that are just amazingly, amazingly rich and sweet. We're talking hot fudge sundae over a warm, moist, brownie kind of, kind of rich. And yet, unlike real hot fudge sundaes, these verses are still healthy for us and good for us. Romans 8 is the great eight because it is so full of these extremely sweet and precious type of verses. It would be wrong of us to ignore the spinach and the Brussels sprout variety. And when we get to hard passages of the Bible, we preach those too. But right now, God in His providence has brought us to a place of the Bible that is just wonderful. And so let me begin by just encouraging us to enjoy this. This is really good. This is good for your, for your soul. Our verse this morning is verse 32. Uh, it's especially helpful because it flies in the face of all of our anxiety and all of our worry. Uh, we begin to worry even from childhood. Uh, when we're young, we worry over the silliest things, right? What if, what if I don't get to see my favorite show? What, what if I don't get to go to, to, to little Billy's birthday party? During the preteen years, the worrying ramps up a little bit. What if my friends laugh at me? What if I'm unattractive? What if I say something dumb? What if so-and-so doesn't notice me? What if I don't make the team? 
What if I get bad grades? What if I don't get into college? What if I disappoint my parents? And as we get older, the temptation to worry seems to grow. Will I find a spouse? Is there anybody out there that would marry me? Will I be able to find a job? Will my job pay the bills? What if I lose my job? What if I never reach my goals? What if my marriage is unhappy? What if we can't have kids? What if we mess up our kids? What if I become depressed? What if I get sick? What if my spouse gets sick? What if something happens to me and I die? What if something happens to one of our kids? Is our insurance in order? Do we have enough to pay our taxes? Is everything going to be okay? And the temptation to worry just continues. Can I make it as a widow or as a widower? What if my kids are now messing up the grandkids? What if I lose my will to live? What if I find myself friendless and alone? What if I die in some long, protracted, painful way? What if I become a burden to my kids? Worry is a spiritual killer. It draws you into a web of unbelief. It paralyzes you so that you are unable to give yourself in love and service to God and to others. In his book called Running Scared, Ed Welch says, Worriers are visionaries, minus the optimism. Listen to Tim Challey sum up Welch's argument. He says, Where a visionary has an optimistic view of the future based on his ability to see current patterns and predict a better alternative, a worrier sees the future in great detail, but always in gory detail. When she anticipates tomorrow's medical appointment, she is already living in a future where her child is battling cancer and succumbing to it. When she sees her child pull out of the driveway, she catches a vision of twisted metal and broken bodies. She sees the future, but she always sees it as bleak and disappointing. Welch says that worriers are akin to false prophets. They are constantly prophesying to themselves about the future. A future ahead that is full of things going wrong. Just as preaching the truth to yourself can sustain your faith and make you vibrant and faithful. Preaching false prophecies to yourself about the future results in fear and cowardice. You become as useful to God as a pillar that keeps trembling and shaking so that nothing can be built upon it. Paul is writing here in Romans 8 to the Christians in first century Rome. And as we have been pointing out all along the way, these Christians were not in a safe place. Nero is in power. And the Christians in Rome are looking over the horizon and they're seeing the dark clouds begin to gather. 
Just to remind you quickly of the facts, Paul is writing this letter either in the year 56 or the year 57. In the year 64, roughly seven years after this letter is written, a tremendous fire will engulf the entire city of Rome. Many people in the city, probably with good cause, are going to blame Emperor Nero for this fire. And the Roman historian Tacitus tells us how Nero responds. He says, To kill these rumors, Nero charged and tortured some people hated for their evil practices. The group popularly called Christians. The founder of this sect, Christus, had been put to death by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, when Tiberius was emperor. Tacitus continues, First, those who confessed to being Christians were arrested, and on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned, although not so much for the fire itself, but as for their hatred of humankind. Before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illumine it. And Nero opened his own gardens for these shows. These Christians in Rome had plenty to worry about. Um, why were they accused of hating humankind? They were accused of hating humankind because they refused to worship the pagan gods. And in the minds of the pagans, the refusal to worship the pagan gods angered those gods so that they brought down judgment upon the whole city. And so when there was famine, when there was drought, when there was anything going wrong, the answer was, the gods are angry. Why? The Christians won't honor them. Tertullian said, if the Tiber floods the city, if the Nile refuses to rise, if the sky withholds its rain, if there's an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, the Christians to the lion. Almost every cause of worry that I mentioned earlier was shared by first century Christians. These people too worried about finding a spouse and paying the bills, and being healthy. But added to the normal anxieties of life, they were worrying over fear of death by lion. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to die in the mouth of a lion? I assure you, they were thinking about it. In all of Romans 8, Paul has been given reason after reason why Christians are incredibly blessed. Why we should feel absolutely safe and secure in the arms of God. Now he summarizes his argument in verse 31, and he supports it in verse 32. So let's read verses 31 and 32. This is the Word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So we looked at verse 31 last week, 
And we saw there that in light of Romans 8.28, Romans 8.29, Romans 8.30, nothing is ultimately against you if you are a Christian. We saw that the very word against loses its meaning for the Christian. There is absolutely nothing in all creation or beyond that is truly against you. Yes, the devil is against you and your flesh is against you and militant Muslims are against you and cancer is against you. And and yet, all of those things are being worked by God for your good. So that at the end of the day, while they may think they're against you, they're actually for you. Everything is for you. When God is for you, in the final analysis, everything is for you. Now notice verse 32 and see the promise that Paul makes here. He writes it in the form of a question. But this question is making a statement. This question is meant to to draw out of you a conclusion that will encourage your soul if you are a Christian. The promise that this question is communicating to you is this. Dear Christian, God will graciously give you all things. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? What is this verse about? It's an echo of what God told His people in the Old Testament. Psalm 84.11 For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Listen, no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. What does it mean that God will graciously give you all things? It means that there is absolutely nothing that would be good for you that God is going to keep from you. There is nothing that would be good for your soul, that would give you greater happiness in heaven, that would give you greater enjoyment of Christ, there is nothing that would be good for you that God is going to keep from you. What Paul was writing here in Romans 8.32 is an echo of what Jesus Himself taught in His ministry. He told His disciples with a crowd gathered round listening, He said, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. He told them to consider the birds of the air, how God cares for the birds. And He said to them, are you not of more value than they? He told them to think about the lilies of the field, how God provides for them. And yet He says the lilies are part of this natural world. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. But you are an eternal soul. Do you think God's not going to provide for you? And then Jesus drove the point home with Matthew 6.33. I hope you have it memorized. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things. There is nothing that would be good for you that God will keep from you if you are His and if you are seeking Him. Everything you need to make it safely to heaven. Everything you need to experience eternal happiness. It is yours. All things are yours. 
And God gives you all things as you need them to bring you safely to heaven and to make you joyful in Him forever. Friends, in light of this truth, your worry about tomorrow should shrivel up and die. And your worry should be replaced by a mighty confidence in your heavenly Father. Now notice the foundation of this promise. Paul uses gospel logic to show how solid the ground is that you're standing on when you are a child of God. His argument is from the greater to the lesser. If God was willing to give the hardest thing of all for your welfare, namely His Son, then do you think there is anything else that you need that He's not willing to give you? Let me make three observations about God not sparing His Son. First, note in our verse that it says that God delivered Christ up for us all. God the Father was not passive in the death of Jesus. It was God who delivered His Son to death. Like Abraham walking up Mount Moriah with Isaac, leading Isaac up the mountain. So it was God the Father who brought His Son to the cross. I know there are some in our day who want to deny that God the Father would have anything to do with the death of His Son. But the Scriptures are clear. Isaiah 53, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. Romans 4.25, He, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The same God who raised Christ up for our justification is the one who delivered Him up for our trespasses. Acts 2.23, this Jesus, these people are praying here, Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Sorry, this is Peter's sermon. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, the hands of lawless men were involved in the death of Jesus. Those hands were the hands that put Christ on the cross, but they were not the ultimate cause of Christ's death. These wicked hands were not the first and decisive cause of Christ's death. It was the decree of Jesus' Father that put Him on the cross. God delivered up His own Son for us all. Second, note that Paul refers to Jesus as God's own Son. Do you see that in the verse? God's own Son. And that's not just in the English, that's in the Greek. God's own Son. Paul could have just as easily have written that God delivered up His Son. But he adds the word own. His his own Son. Why does he add that reflexive pronoun own? He's emphasizing the special relationship between the Father and the Son. As Christians, we are adopted sons and daughters of God, but Jesus is God's own Son. Jesus is the begotten of the Father. 
Jesus is the one that eternally proceeds from the Father, just as your image proceeds from you whenever you look in a mirror. There is a relationship between the Father and the Son that is deeper and richer and greater than any other relationship that has ever existed. Do you remember when God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Abraham had another son. In our study of Genesis, we saw that Abraham had a son called Ishmael, and he loved Ishmael. But Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the son through whom all of God's promises were going to come true. Isaac was supremely dear to the heart of his, to the heart of his father Abraham. And the test for Abraham was this. Do you love God so much that you would lay down your own son for God's sake? It says a lot about the depth of God's love for you that He was willing to sacrifice His Son, His own Son. Mount Hermon, if God was willing to do that, can you doubt that He is going to give you everything else you need to make it to heaven safely? Do you think there's anything else that God says, I will give My Son for you, but this over here? Nope. He's given the hardest thing of all. Don't doubt that He will give everything else you need to bring you to Himself in heaven. Third, note that God not sparing His Son meant that Jesus would experience great suffering. Yes, the resurrection was part of the plan. When God gave up His Son for you, He knew that His Son would rise again. Even Abraham seemed to believe that if he had to kill his son Isaac, God would raise him up again to fulfill the promises he had made. But what makes God not sparing his son so amazing is that it meant that God's son would experience such terrible suffering. Would God really be willing to let his son take on flesh of a human body and then experience hunger and thirst and weariness? Would God be willing to let His Son have a human body that would experience a cold or the flu or a stomach virus? Would God not interfere when His Son as a baby boy was being hunted down by King Herod? Joseph and Mary were godly parents, but they were still sinners. Certainly there were times when they were making parenting mistakes. What was it like to be God the Father watching His Son Jesus being mishandled by these parents? The Son of Man had no place to lay His head. He was rebuked by religious leaders. He was envied. He was hated. He was slandered. He was lied to. He was betrayed. He was denied. He was deserted. And then there was Gethsemane. Agony so deep that Christ sweat, sweat like blood. There was the agony of Pilate's praetorium as he was beaten. And there was the agony of Golgotha and the cross. 
And yet all of this physical suffering was just pocket change compared to God the Father unleashing His righteous wrath against the sins of Christ's people upon the human soul of Christ. So that Christ cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Tell me, you who hear Him groaning, was there ever grief like His? Friends through fear His calls disowning. Foes insulting His distress. Many hands were raised to wound Him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced Him was the stroke that justice gave. Dear Christian, if God did not spare His Son from all of this, because He was committed to your welfare, do you think He's going to fail you now? Now you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Justin. You're sitting here telling us that our God will never forsake us and that He will keep us safe to the end, and here He is forsaking His Son. If He forsook Jesus, might He not forsake us too? It's dead wrong. Yes, God forsook His Son on the cross. But that was only because Jesus willingly laid down His life and submitted to being forsaken. From before the foundations of the world, the Father and the Son had agreed together to save you in this way. Even when God was forsaking His Son on the cross, He was keeping His covenant that He had made to the Son from before the foundations of the earth. And of course, God did not leave His Son dead, but raised Him up and and exalted Him above every other power in this world. Gave Him a name above every other name. Three implications. Three implications. I'm assuming you see now the rock-solid logic of Romans 8.32. If He was not willing to spare His own Son for your sake, there's nothing else He will keep from you to get you to heaven safely. Three implications. Number one, the only appropriate response to this verse is to repent of all of our worry, all of our anxiety, all of our doubting, and to joyfully and gratefully trust our God. That's the response to this verse. And there is no other appropriate response If you leave this place this morning and you continue to live in worry, it is because you are choosing not to believe and trust and live in this verse. To be a doer of this Word and not a hearer only means to turn from all worry. To turn from all anxiety, thinking about the future, prophesying to yourself, oh, it's going to be terrible. Oh, what's the doctor going to say? Oh, what's going to happen at work tomorrow? What's going to happen? Put it aside. My God's going to give me everything I need to make it safely to heaven. I am okay. I am safe. I am secure by the grace of God. I am confronting you with a word from God that ought to be received with inexpressible wonder 
and gratitude. Will you receive it that way? Do not let your heart and mind continue to look for reasons to be worried. But in the face of Romans 8.28, 8.29, 8.30, 8.31, 8.32, let your worry be ground into dust and embrace the peace of God in your heart. Here is where we find that peace that passes understanding. Lift up your head. Wipe away the tears from your eyes. Get off of the ground and live for God with courage and with boldness. Number two, second implication for us. See what true love looks like. See here what true love looks like because it is on display here in Romans 8. It began with God making a commitment to your welfare. Romans 8.29, those whom He foreknew, everything else happens. And we saw that that means that before the foundations of the world, God chose to set His love upon a people and He committed Himself to them. And everything else He has done, He has done because of His loyalty to them. Because of His commitment to them. Folks, true love always begins with a commitment to another person's welfare. And then true love keeps that commitment no matter what the cost. God loved us so much that He did not spare His own Son. What is true love? It is keeping your commitment to someone else's welfare no matter what it costs you. It's not an emotion where you fall in love and you fall out. No! Love is a commitment to the welfare of another person. Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? What does love look like? It looks like a husband who loved his bride so much he was willing to be bound to a tree and choke on his own blood for her. That's love. And you know what? The bride wasn't even very pretty, were we? We weren't even attractive. We were filthy. We were full of sin. And he was so committed to us that for our life he died. Back in 2011, Pat Robertson, you know who Pat Robertson is, he, he made the news when he was asked about a man, he was asked by a man, um, a question about this man's wife who had Alzheimer's. The man said that the wife that he knew was gone. Alzheimer's had taken her away. And he wanted to know if he was now free to start dating other people. And Pat Robertson, in a statement that he did later retract, said that he thought it was appropriate for this man to divorce his wife. At the season of her life when she needed him the most. At the season of her life when she was the most vulnerable, the most in need of care, here was a man that wanted to jump ship. How many there are today who think of love only in terms of what they are receiving? I'm in so in love with you because of how you make me feel. 
And if you stop making me feel that way, I'm no longer in love. When caring for the other person gets hard, when caring for the other person costs me, when I, when I no longer enjoy it, it's no longer love. It's our world's perspective. Friends, here is love. Romans 8.32 is love. It means being utterly committed to the welfare of another person no matter how great the cost to you, no matter how great the suffering you must endure, no matter how difficult it becomes, no matter how great the hardship, for their sake, you will do what you have to do to see them be okay. Husbands, do you love your wives? Wives, do you love your husbands? Parents, do you love your children? Mount Hermon, do we, do we love one another as God has so loved us? And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Implication number three. This is the last one. Implication number three. The only way to have the promise of Romans 8.32 is through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.32 is a promise that secures you. It gives you courage. It gives you security. It causes you to be able to grind your worry to the dust. It is a precious promise. It is a precious promise, but it is only yours in Jesus Christ. Did you see the two all-important words in this verse? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things. In other words, the all things that God will give to you to make sure you reach heaven and experience eternal happiness in Him, every one of them is connected to Jesus Christ. Every blessing God gives is with Christ. When you receive Christ, you receive everything you need. If you haven't received Christ, you don't have anything. I set before you this morning an atomic bomb of truth that the Spirit can use to kill your anxiety and to make you courageous, confident, and bold. This truth can set you free from paralysis. It can get you out there serving other people, loving other people, being more concerned with their needs than your needs. But this truth is only yours in connection with Jesus. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Without Jesus, God is not just to give a sinner these blessings. The greatest worry that a person could ever have is the worry they will one day stand before God on their own merits. Friends, if you stand before God on your own merits, you are a goner. God owes us all a debt, and the debt He owes us is hell. Justice demands that God be against us. Only through Jesus Christ and His perfect life and His substitutionary death is God just to forgive your sins and to bless you and to bring you safely to heaven. 
And so for all of us in this room, I set before us the way of salvation. And His name is Jesus Christ. Will you trust Him? Will you follow Him? I pray we all will. Let's pray together.